Uh, mi gente, hello, and welcome to Kika's Corner. My name is Kika Matos, and I am your host. Kika's Corner usually airs once a month on the first Wednesday of every month, but today we're mixing it up a little bit. We're airing on a Tuesday, and the show will be for an hour instead of the usual 30 minutes. The goal for this show is to focus on interesting topics, fascinating people, social justice issues, and maybe a scandal or two. But always, 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 whatever we talk about will have a New Haven edge. On the studio with me today are three fierce women. They have a few things in common, but they're all very different. What they have in common is that they're all women. They're all women of color. They teach at Yale. They all live in New Haven, and they all have something to say. Let me quickly introduce them. Uh, Alicia Schmidt Camacho is with us today. Alicia is professor of American Studies and Ethnicity, Race, and Migration. She's also the associate head of college for Ezra Stiles College. Welcome, Alicia. Good to be here. Also with us today is Tracy Mears, who is the Walton Hale Hamilton Professor of Law at Yale University. Thanks for being with us today, Tracy. Thanks for having me, Kika. And last but not least is Veshla Weaver, who is Associate Professor of Political Science and African American Studies, and she's also Founding Director of the ISPS Center for the Study of Inequality. Welcome, Veshla. Great to be on Kika's Corner, or in <laughs> Kika's Corner. Always. Always, always in my corner. Uh, so folks, for the next hour, we're going to talk about a bunch of different topics that involve Yale and New Haven, including the recent student unrest involving students of color, and the university's recent decision to continue to name a dorm after noted white supremacist John Calhoun. Uh, we're going to talk about diversity at Yale, especially among the faculty. And finally, if we have time, we're also going to touch on town gown relations. So let's get started. And I want us to start with um, Calhoun first, but I want to do a little bit of framing because I'm not sure that folks in the New Haven community outside of campus really have a sense of what's been going on. So there's been a lot of unrest and disruption at Yale recently, I think starting last year. Um, my understanding is that there were a number of racist incidents that led to internal tensions between students of color and the administration. And it seems like some of these issues have actually uh, not been resolved and they've flared up again as of the last couple of weeks. Um, and now it seems like the tension and disruption is spreading like a virus and is now affecting the New Haven community. So relations between Yale and local and state elected officials have soured recently over taxation issues. And we'll talk a little bit about that uh, later. And there is some growing hostility between Yale and the union since the unions are apparently starting to renegotiate the contracts for the next four years. So word on the street now, all throughout New Haven, and it seems to be one of those topics of coffee and dinner time conversations, is that town gown relations are the worst that they've been in some time. And folks, both inside and outside of the university, are starting to wonder what really is going on. Um, so let's unpack it a little bit. And um, first on the subject of Calhoun College. So here is what I know. Um, last year, the students of color and their allies made a demand of Peter Salovey, who's the president at Yale, that Calhoun College be renamed. And just as a refresher for folks listening to us, Calhoun College is named after John Calhoun, who was a Yale graduate who went on to become 
uh, vice president and secretary of state. And he's probably known as one of the most ardent champions of slavery and states' rights during his time. And he's a man who saw slavery as a quote-unquote positive good instead of a necessary evil as others during his time described it. And my understanding is that there was a long process where the president talked to students, the corporation talked to students, students weighed in, faculty had conversations, and then a couple of weeks ago, Salovey announced that Calhoun College would retain its name. And he justified that decision by saying, and I quote, that erasing Calhoun's name obscures the legacy of slavery rather than addressing it. Needless to say, his decision and explanation outraged many within and outside of the university. So, Alicia, let me start with you. Do you agree with Peter Salovey's decision? No, and I disagree on many levels. First of all, the idea that retaining the name of Calhoun will allow us to be more conscious and aware of the legacies of slavery um, seems um, to go against all of the work that faculty, that students, that staff have shared about their own desires to address the legacies of slavery and colonialism at Yale. This is an initiative that's been taken up not only um, within programs like um, African-American studies, ethnicity, race, and migration um, and among the students, but it's something that's happening at campuses around the country and indeed the world. South Africa is confronting the legacies of apartheid in its institutions. Um, we see this happening in Australia. Um, there, in this, Yale is out of step with most of its peers, notably um, Georgetown and other institutions that have sought to foreground the importance of reparations, the importance of commemorating the nameless who um, built these institutions. Um, and so the retention of Calhoun's name in particular is an offense to the question of how we want to do this work of commemoration. Can I jump in here on of this course. Go one ahead, Tracy. little point? I think the other thing that's sort of interesting about um, President Salovey's stated reason for keeping the name as a mechanism for exploring history is that if you have been to Calhoun College, there is a stained glass window over the common room um, that now has a, a picture, a depiction of, of John Calhoun amidst clouds. Was in about the mid 90s that those glass panes were changed. And what they depicted before clouds was um, an enslaved black man in chains at Calhoun's feet until the mid 90s. The university thought it was a good idea to erase that history um, and not explore the, the meaning of it, where decades of students had to, you know, look. At, at that artwork. Um, and what's even more interesting is that it's almost impossible to find an image of the former stained glass on the internet. So someone has scrubbed that history. My understanding is that the reason it happened and that agitation from students is really what led to the changing of the stained glass. And, and it's really been a continuing struggle of students to try to get the university to reckon with 
the name of a college named after somebody who was so deeply racist? That's my sense of what is going on. I, I just feel like if the, the university should be honest about, um, you know, it's wrestling with the history and, and this decision to keep the name, but erase other parts of the history in the name of actually pursuing and exploring history um, just smacks of um, a little bit of disingenuousness in my view. So let me ask the three of you one question. If you were Peter Salovey, what would you have done? That's a great question, Kika. I think um, <clears throat> you started off with a, a quote, just to back up for a second, from, from President Salovey that underscored the need to engage thoughtfully with history and to confront the past, not run away from it. And I found that when, when I first read that, I thought this is such a convenient way of, of getting around, of sidestepping history and of not actually doing the right thing. Um, and, the, and it begs the question, history for whom? So I imagine, and it reminds me of sort of the affirmative action decisions and, and diversity discourse, right? This is good for white students to grapple with and acknowledge these, these kind of, you know, tormented pasts that we, you know, that we've had. But what about black students? How do black students experience this? This isn't walking by a memorial. This is where they live. This is where they socialize. This is where they dine. This is where they study. This is where they are having probably their most memorable formative experience as young adolescents. And to put this, to keep this name means that Salovey was okay with all of, either okay with or didn't consider the effects for black students. Um, namely, there's a whole host of trove of literature around stereotype threat. There's a whole trove of literature that shows that when people are reminded of their unequal worth, they inhabit that unequal worth and they perform that unequal worth. And I'm really concerned with that. Um, so if I were the president, I would have changed the name. I would have changed it to um, uh, uh, or at least if I had kept the name, I would have made it the site for reparations, for engaging with the city, engaging with the legacy. On my walk here, I passed by that legacy. It's all over our city. And, and I would have made it the site for, uh, um, as one of our faculty colleagues has, has recommended, a social justice fund, a place where people where activism occurs and where we actually do really engage with the history. What do you think, Alicia? What would you have done? Say you're President Camacho. So I think this reflects um, a real problem within the institution. And I think of Yale as an institution that's in a profound process of transition um, in terms of its internal decision-making structure where authority and accountability lie, um, and also in its intellectual and um, scholarly mission. It has diversified the student body. It has um, begun over the last dec two decades to really engage the city in new ways, because it has to. But at the same time, the structures of governance and authority have remained um, very solidly um, impervious to these changes. Um, and as a result, 
the president is speaking to our campus community, taking ownership of a decision that very clearly is also happening um, beyond his grasp and control, right? That the decisions about the naming of the colleges, the funding, are um, constrained by um, the power of donors and alums and uh, corporations in which people of color are always going to be at a disadvantage and always be minoritized. And I say minoritized because if I were president, I would have the capacity to change the way difference is understood and thought about. And what I think is, is really significant in the way Salve's administration uh, responded was they bundled four decisions, the two names of the two new colleges and the decision about what the director of the college, the head of the college would be named um, and the question of Calhoun. Um, rather than imagine that you can do behind the scenes. So Alicia, break, it, break it down for, uh, for oh, us. Right. I should give the details. So basically the two new colleges that Yale are constructing One is named for Benjamin Franklin at the behest of the funder um, who gave a historically large um, $250 million donation um, and stipulated that it be named for Franklin, a personal hero who also is the name for his hedge fund company. And Franklin was a former slave owner, I understand, and then yes. became an abolitionist. I mean, honestly... All and an honorary of the, graduate all of, of the all of the colleges are named for slave owners. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, Calhoun is representative of the most egregious version mm -hmm. of this racial ideology. But in the 30s when these colleges were built, they were they were dedicated with very minimal concern for that legacy, right? These are not 19th century institutions. These are 20th century institutions that are participating in a racial politics of the 20th century that were segregationists. But in any case, um, the other college was named for Polly Murray, who is a champion of uh, civil rights um, as a black um, activist in um, the law who gave us uh, work on behalf of gender equity as a Title IX advocate as someone who advocated um, both from the grassroots and through um, courtroom um, work for uh, racial equity and gender equity, and who was herself LGBT, was lesbian in an era in which that was to be kept private and unnamed. So what, um, those were the two new titles of the colleges, the de dedication to um, Franklin and Murray. Um, and then the decision was named to overturn and do away with the title master as an antiquated and uncomfortable title mm -hmm. for the head of a college. But then Calhoun was retained. And so essentially what you get there is a decision that looks like concessions to two existing constituencies. And my problem is, is that there is no need to imagine that we live in such a segregated and polarized institution and that our job as authorities is to lead uh, away from those kinds of polar polarizations. And so the naming of um, Franklin College, um, the naming of the, the title of the new head of college as head, 
are, don't um, add up, right? They're inconsistent with each other. And so the question that I have is, where is the vision? And as a leading institution of higher education, we have the luxury with our endowment, we also have the luxury of all the intellectual resources we have to um, articulate a social vision, an intellectual vision. And in this case, it felt to me that the faculty and the students were far out in front of the administration in terms of understanding um, how to manage this racial legacy, how to think about the transformations on, ongoing in this institution, and how to look ahead to the future of what this institution will be for the 21st century. Um, and I think here you have the president stuck in uh, a bind where he cannot really um, show a clearly articulated um, perspective and instead is, is seeking to give accommodations um, um, where, and I think the students called him on it. It was like a lot of pandering and a lack of moral backbone. Well, um, Trace, first, go ahead. Oh, sorry. Line, then I want to hear a little bit from Tracy on your own perspectives. I just wanted to add to Alicia's comment because it, it wasn't just a sense that faculty and students were opposed. There was real data. I mean, he, President Salve received a letter signed by 364 faculty in the arts and sciences that's over half of the faculty, and that's just of the people that happen to get this thing in their inbox. I mean, that's over half. And, you know, I mean, with lots of representation from the sciences, from all of the divisions. Um, so we we actually were part of the majority yes. sentiment. And I understand that the Yale Daily News also did a survey of students, and what I found really sad and um really emblematic of the cynicism that exists and the lack of trust between what seems to be a lack of trust between the students and the administration is that I, I believe 1700 students were surveyed and a majority of them wanted Calhoun's name to be removed. And a majority of them also expected that the university was not going to move in that direction, mm -hmm. which I thought was really, was really telling mm -hmm. Tra Tracy, you look like you've got a lot to say. Well, you know, I I, I don't think I have a different perspective. I just have maybe a shifted perspective that comes from the fact that um, I'm a faculty member of the law school. And the law school is one of the professional schools at the university. Um, it's not part of the faculty of arts and sciences. So we often observe these things, you know, from outside. You know, we're often not asked to, you know, participate in, um, you know, these kinds of surveys um, we're not part of the faculty senate, you know, different organizations where faculty actually get to register a voice. And, you know, with respect to your first question about what I would do were I president, um, I would have thought, would have hoped, and as president, this would have been my view, that the decision to remove Calhoun's name um, from that college would have been as obvious as no longer cleaving to the title of master. These are two obvious decisions. You know, the, the decision to change the name of the head of college did not deserve three paragraphs or however many <laughs> paragraphs that President Solovey wrote to, to justify that, the, you know, decision. Um, I think so too, the decision to remove the name, um, a name that was given to the college in the 30s. This is not something of old, ancient pedigree here at Yale. It was obvious. I think the tougher decision is the decision about what the name should be. And so for me, 
I think the question would be what process would we go through as a university community to select the name? And maybe it would be a process of, you know, having rotating names for all of the colleges or, you know, different ways to create inclusion. Now, maybe this is not um, uh, an option given the, the corporation, uh, you know, the charters of incorporation. I don't know. But, you know, I think removal, removal is obvious. What it should be is not. And I think that's another reason why I found, you know, this process of that, that the president articulated of, of how to do history or how to teach history disappointing. I mean, having a, a what seems to be essentially an art contest mm-hmm. is not, to me, a way of seriously engaging this in a way that having a very deliberate, considered, maybe even, you know, multi-year process of selecting the name really could have been. Um, I think finally, one of the deep ironies of the decision to keep the name is that I think we all now probably know a great deal more about um, Calhoun College and the the reason for naming it, choosing that name to begin with, and you know, sort of excavating what all of these things mean um, in a way that we probably wouldn't have if the decision had been to just remove the name and substitute it with something else without making you know a kind of longer term decision about the process. So maybe that is a a kind of lemonade in all of this. Mm-hmm. You are listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio, broadcast at 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Um, I want to shift gears a little bit from Calhoun to the broader uh, disruptions that have taken place on campus um, that involve students of color, because in many ways, this is really the tip of the iceberg. This is one of the issues that has generated a lot of attention, I think both um, state and to some extent national attention. Um, But this is one of a series of things that students of color have agitated around. So Veshla, um, is this the tip of the iceberg? And if so, what are the other things that have caused so much, I don't want, I'm not sure insurrection is the right word, but so much angst and anger and agitation on campus? Mm-hmm. I think there's micro factors and macro factors. I mean, the macro is, you know, what we've all experienced over the past three years. Uh, the rise of Black Lives Matter, the police killings and police violence uh, that has always happened in black communities, but that has finally gotten the the news media attention that it so deserves. Um, and into that space, um, uh, uh, both white students and black students and Latino students and 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 everybody else is being socialized. And so activism has mounted on Yale's campus. I think it links up with several structural factors as well as some incidents like the, um, you know, uh, uh, pulling of a gun of a uh, Yale security officer on on uh, Todd Blow, um, the son of Charles Blow. African-American um, student. A black student. Yeah. Um, and that led to a wave of, of, of activity. And then there was a broader concern that the experiences, histories, 
values, perspectives of uh, othered and marginalized people on campus weren't being valued. And they particularly weren't being valued because it became very difficult to find, and this is one thing I want to talk about, to find uh, uh, black and Latino faculty and Native American faculty on campus um, to teach them, to mentor them, to help them through what they were experiencing. Um, so to give you some idea of what has occurred, in the 2000s, Yale was actually doing really well in terms of faculty diversity, uh, uh, female faculty and hiring of underrepresented minority faculty. And um, what happened in the most uh, recent years is a plummeting, um, uh, not just a stagnation, a real plummeting of hiring of underrepresented minority faculty. So you saw the hiring of assistant professors who are underrepresented minorities, particularly in certain fields like the social sciences. Um, in 2006, they represented 18%. Uh, 18% were underrepresented minorities within the social sciences. By 2015, less than 8% were. So alongside <laughs> discussions... Pretty of, shocking. It's, it's really shocking it is unmatched uh, at our peer institutions, and it's unmatched in comparison to our own history. We were doing well. And, and then something happened, and those gains uh, were, were eroded. And students are alert to these changes. They feel them uh, when they're looking for somebody to advise them on their senior essay or to talk to them about an experience they had in Calhoun College. Who do they turn to? Uh, what classes do they have to teach them Latino politics or inequality or the histories of, of these groups? So talk to me about the drop in the percentage of faculty of, of color. Um, uh, my understanding is that there, so the student body is, let me pull up the statistics as of 2015, mm -hmm. um, 52%, 52.5% white, 7.6% black, 12.3% Latino, 18.5% Asian, and 7% uh, Native American. And you say now the faculty representation is 8%? I was speaking um, in the division that has seen the biggest erosion, which is the social sciences. Okay. Um, but, you know, we went from, just to give you a quick statistic, from, from uh, 30 black faculty in 2012 to 24. Okay, that is a huge drop. Um, Between 2012 and now? And so now. I can keep and going. now. And, and if you were to go to the social sciences, I can literally count them on one hand plus a finger. <laughs> okay. <laughs> So why why so so one of the things I just want to want to contrast there is a, a a growing percentage of students of color although mm -hmm. the percentage of black students it's it is pretty horrendous and a very small percentage of faculty of color and the black faculty in particular my understanding is that there's been a mass exodus outside of the university uh, and as I was prepping for this radio show there are a bunch of different opinions that mm -hmm. Yale has a terrible job at retention that it's much more challenging for faculty of color because they get more faculty committee assignments because everybody wants you know diversity in their committee um, people talked about the really lengthy process for tenure which is I believe nine years here as opposed to six years in other universities but 
What is your own sense, Alicia? You, you, you indicate that that's changed. So I want to hear from the three of you um, what your own sense of why such a low percentage of faculty of color, number one, and why is there such, ironically, I'm going to use this black flight that takes place um, on at the university from black faculty? Who wants to start? Alicia. So I just want to step in a little bit about the student politics to get to that. Um, you know, one of the things is we're constrained by is that we operate with very inadequate record keeping and institutional um, analysis of these mm -hmm. processes. And just looking at the student body involved in all of the actions taking place, which range from overt uh, marches and protests and, and um, occupying of space to um, a lot of work in dedicated town hall meetings, in editorial work through campus publications, in setting up task force and institution building projects like evaluating financial aid or evaluating psychiatric services, evaluating what's um, still lacking for first generation students. These are students who have really been institution minded, but also they're articulating an understanding of the institution that really belongs to a new reality. So the diversity of this student body doesn't actually correspond neatly to the categories we even use. Mm -hmm. The leadership of this set of actions was largely Afro-Latina and black women, some of them international, some of them African, um, and many of them were queer. Um, their, the mobilization itself had um, full incorporation and voice of um, every ethnic group on campus. Um, so in many ways, the students, it also um, made a protagonist of the first generation student. So we've had first generation students in numbers before, but their percentage is much greater than ever before. And they are primarily in um, Latino population and um, to a lesser degree, African-American. Um, so these mobilizations are articulating an analysis that brings class to the fore, that brings issues of sexuality and gender identity, trans students to the fore, that talks about the place of international students and transnational linkages in the university. Um, so their critique of the institution is um, from, a, again, a very different sense of reality than people in my generation, you know, would have experienced. Um, and the sense that I have is it's an evolving population, right? That, um, and so part of what I think created this gap is that the university itself has um, fallen far behind peer institutions in terms of educating its own leadership in monitoring and providing leadership around inclusion. And we say inclusion, not diversity, because mm -hmm. diversity really is about percentages and numbers. Inclusion is about the intellectual mission and leadership of this institution, where Yale is especially, I think, egregious. Mm -hmm. So talk to me a little bit, and I'm not sure who to direct this question to, about the set of student demands that emerge, because I think in addition to the incident that um, you mentioned, Veshla, my understanding is that there was another highly publicized incident with a young woman of color who was denied entrance to a fraternity because they were looking for 
blonde white girls. And then there was the Christakis infamous racist email where she was basically telling students of color that they need to suck it up if, if other students wear racist Halloween costumes. And, you know, it seemed like that was the proverbial straw for many students. Um, but from the outside, what's been interesting is I, I should make a, a couple of observations. One is that the the media and particularly the right wing media, in my opinion, really quickly seized on this issue um, and completely reframed it into an issue of these whiny students of color who are coddled and now they are threatening the First Amendment rights of others. Um, and um, there was, uh, it was very difficult and it seemed like this, and, and, and then the other observation I had was that the, and this is a, a, a gentle critique of the students, it seemed like they were very um, focused on student concerns and not a broader analysis of economic disparities and racial issues within the city of New Haven. And so there seemed to have been a big disconnect between what students were suffering, which is not that dissimilar from what other uh, people of color uh, confront as employees within the institution, for starters. Uh, and so I just want to get your sense um, of of what actually was happening throughout this time and whether you think it's a fair critique that these students just really need to get over themselves. And, you know, they should be lucky that they're such an elite institution and they have such a friendly president who will, you know, lend them an ear, even if he ends up um, really, set, you know, being retrograde in, in, in mm. terms of the agenda. So who wants to start? Veshla, you want to take that on and then turn it over to Alicia and, and Tracy? Or Tracy, I saw you starting to so say something. I would love to hear what the, what Alicia and Veshla have to say about the undergraduate students in particular with respect to what you have to say. Um, because at the law school, we had our own, you know, agitation happening that actually predated this by about a year. And we went under we underwent our own process and so talk I, to us about I'd what happened like at the law school. I'd like to talk about that too. Um, but I, I also think that the reaction of our students might have been a little bit different in part because I don't know it's fair to say that the kids should suck it up, but it is true that, you know, some of the undergraduates are young. And, and um, I'm not, by saying that, I don't want to undermine any of the, the great work that they've done. But, you know, the fact that they're focusing on their own situation um, first and foremost is not surprising. I also think they do um, are attentive to the wider New Haven um, issues that in a way that might not be obvious to everyone. It's more clear to me that the law students do that um, in part because they're for the most part grownups, but also we have all sorts of structures in the law school designed literally to have the students engage with the wider New Haven community in terms of clinics and the like. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's part mm -hmm. of the educational mission. So just briefly in terms of what our students were worried about, many of the same issues you've heard Alicia and Vashla just talk about, the student experience, the lack of inclusion, um, you know, the, the, the faculty diversity on the law school. I am the, the first and only African-American woman um, on Yale Law School's faculty with tenure, um, I think ever, ever, and now um, there are th 
three of us on the fa- African Americans on the faculty now who are not emeritus. Drew Days, the great Drew Days, is now an emeritus faculty. So um, you know, we have we have one Latina uh, on our faculty. I mean, you know, the the law school has if we're just talking about demographics and diversity, um, has longstanding uh, just serious to break in, issues. The professional schools as a whole um, have unbelievably low numbers. Yes. So the law school looks good if you compare it to School of Architecture and Drama, where you might have passing through people who are adjuncts, but there is not, not a single person of color appointed. Right. And so... Because of our student agitation, the law school um, undertook a year-long um, committee to examine um, what we could do. And we were in the midst of that when a lot of the student unrest in the college um, took place. And our students you know, walked hand-in-hand, arm-in-arm with the undergraduates a- across the campus. Um, and I think for us... You know, we did some serious soul searching. There was a report that was produced. It was reported on in the in the Yale Daily News. And you know, like our um, like the college, the law school is not substantially different from our peers, but we're not doing as as well. And and we need to do better. So why are there such few raisins in this massive milk bowl? I mean, is it that there's just let me just put it bluntly. Is it that there are just not enough smart people that are credentialed enough to be at Yale, or are we talking about structural racism or other things? Well, I I'm here as a target of opportunity hire, so I was. A what does ri- that mean? So so essentially, I'm part of the moment that Veshla is describing, in which the university sought to meet new targets for hiring underrepresented minorities. And I had been initially hired as a spouse um, and given a halftime lectureship. And at that moment, um, the Department of Spanish and Portuguese, which deserves the show all to itself, had failed over several generations to promote anybody in Latino studies out of a third year junior position. So no one was ever renewed. Um, it looked like the search that they were doing at that moment might also fail for a Latino studies person. So the central administration saw me as a uh, good candidate for a junior position that would be what was then called ladder track, so on path to tenure in American studies. Now, I was one of a cohort of people brought in in another moment in which these kinds of soft money was being used to augment existing uh, hiring um, to build diversity and meet needs that were unmet. At the, t- at the time, um, large area of Latino studies was unmet. Um, and so this was in large part a response to institutional failure over generations to produce tenured people. But in the time that I've been at Yale, Yale's Um, history department deliberated whether Native American history merited a senior tenured appointment. Mm. We were able to make one appointment with tenure um, after successive failures to retain Native faculty. Um, 
as a target of opportunity. So not because there was a departmental process that said, we must build in this area, we must represent this field, it is part of American history, but because there were a group of faculty of color and students clamoring for this as part of our need to maintain mm-hmm. academic excellence into the 21st century and build a reasonable program in American studies and ethnicity, race, and migration. So all of the people that were brought in in my cohort were who were underrepresented minorities were largely brought in as target of opportunity. So the central administration designated us as people who could cover areas of need and build institutional diversity. The problem is, is that the minute that any of us leave or are failed to be promoted, those resources disappear. We entered into an austerity period where supposedly hiring was frozen and in large areas it was um, because of the economic downturn and Yale's drop in um, interest in its endowment. During that period, stewardship of this critical initiative around diversity fell apart. And I think here you see the resurgence of a certain kind of uh, institutional racism out of a need to be conservative, to be conservative in an era where scarcity um, and scarcity economics dominated decision-making, in which case then the, the sort of powers within Um, departments, existing uh, institutional committees that survey and rule on faculty um, promotion, chose to um, look for the opportunities to reproduce the existing institutional structure and reproduce themselves and their own intellectual authority at the cost of partnering with a very small number of us who are still here um, to build innovatively in interdisciplinary programs where faculty diversity has flourished, namely uh, African-American studies, American studies, and uh, women's gender and sexuality studies. ERNM, the Ethnicity, Race, and Migration Program, which was at the heart of the student protest, um, had not had faculty appointment power. So essentially, ethnic studies beyond AFAM has not existed in any institutionalized way at the university yet. And you don't have a formal department, is my understanding. No, and we, we don't. The other thing that's just, just for a second, that's mm-hmm. really disappointing about this story is, you know, we're essentially 10 years behind, and the president announces a huge um, initiative. $50 million? Right. Um, you know, to make advances on this um, on this issue, in a world in which we're 10 years behind. So if you're gonna make advances, really you have to just catch up to where we would have been and then advance. And if you compare the $50 million that Yale is willing to spend compared to you know, Columbia's investment of 80 million or Brown recently announced a $165 million investment um, in a world in which both of those universities' endowments um, are dwarfs in relationship to ours. Uh, you know, that kind of juxtaposition, I think, goes back to what Alicia was talking about in terms of you know, the packaging of certain decisions. You, you put all of these things together, and it's really hard to see where the leadership is, the needed leadership is on this issue. So uh, uh, to the issue of the $50 million that Yale announced, my understanding is that it's over five, a five-year 
commitment to diversify faculties at rights of 10 million a year. Um, I came across an article uh, where uh, they made this article made mention of the fact that um, uh, anthropology and East Asian studies professor Karen Nakamura announced that she was leaving, and this was in the aftermath of Elizabeth Alexander leaving, Jafari Allen leaving, and other professors of color. And um, when she was asked about this $50 million uh, initiative, she called it smoke and mirrors, which I think is, is interesting because um, if she were in this room, I think she would largely be uh, in agreement with some of the conversation here that the university isn't doing enough. Uh, but I actually want to switch to the personal. I know we've, we've been having a conversation about the university um, and you are three women of color. Tracy, you're the only ever tenured black woman in the law school. I should take a photo of you and ask you to <laughs> autograph it before the show is over because you definitely uh, are unique. Um, uh, and Alicia, you have been at the university for a really long time and you're one of the, let me say, you're no longer a master. You are head of college at Ezra Stiles as a Latina. Associate. Associate yeah, I'm head. the only um, Latina woman professor Latina in this School of Arts and Sciences, and one of two employed by the whole university. And Veshla, you came into the university during a time when many other Black professors were yeah. were fleeing. Talk to me about First how this. Only. So tell me about the personal. We've been talking in very analytical terms, but surely mm -hmm. the. It must be incredibly stressful to feel like you are representing at a university that that has challenging issues when it comes to race and gender and representation. I am going to guess that you also feel the psychic and emotional toll of many students of color coming to you during critical times for advice and support simply because they feel um, they are feeling the psychic pain of race and gender bias. What kind of, how does this impact you personally? I mean, you're an institution that has many challenges. How do you feel? Personally, I mean, <clears throat> it's a big question. And I think, you know, there's studies that show that people experience, they, they, when asked, does discrimination exist generally, they say, yes, of course it exists. It's a major problem. But when asked, so do you experience discrimination personally? They often say no. Mm -hmm. It's harder to acknowledge and to see one's own experiences with discrimination. Um, and I think, you know, it's, it's more subtle than that. It's, you know, the number of times that you are asked to be a, a spokesperson for your race, right? Somebody uh, has a class and one section of it is going to discuss Black Lives Matter and you're the person that they turn to and and all of those requests pile up and because you're the only one so I'm the only one in my department that studies race politics uh, and inequality uh, of, of black Americans and you know so you're often the spokesperson you're often if you don't show up for a talk with, that happens to be on your subject it's noticed because you're the only one um, I mean, I think the other aspect of this is it's very difficult to be, I, I shouldn't say it's very difficult. We exist at this incredibly wealthy institution where we have had incredible 
experience of individual mobility and access, okay, within New Haven. And this is what I thought you were getting to earlier. Um, I live in a neighborhood where I pass by. So three... just for the record, Rachel and I are neighbors. Right, right. <laughs> we, live in, we live in Fairhaven. And, and to get to, to the office, you know, you go past bail bondsmen, you go past shelters, you go past people that are struggling, really struggling. Um, and also people that are, you know, just living ordinary existences and going to church and walking their kids to school. Um, but I'm reminded of that daily. And I'm reminded that I live in a city that has one of the highest rates of economic inequality mm -hmm. and income segregation. I just saw, and I just have to put this out there because it's just a striking number, right? We know about concentrated poverty. We know about concentrated affluence. But in the last four decades, the number of families, um, two sociologists found that the percent of families in New Haven that are either living in deeply poor or very affluent neighborhoods went from 6.4% in 1970 to 30.5%, yep. right? So mm -hmm. we are increasingly living extremely disparate lives. I remember my first experience coming to New Haven to mm -hmm. visit. I was uh, told where to live, what neighborhoods to live in, what kind of people lived there, mm -hmm. where not to live in. I was given a very explicit education about where not to live. Um, and was that from folks within the university? From folks within the university, but also my real estate agent mm -hmm. um, literally drove me through. I wanted to see a house in Fairhaven and she said, that area is dicey. And we said, what do you mean? Well, it just gets a little bit funny. Okay. So we exist at this institution where, you know, and I don't think these two things can be decoupled, mm -hmm. right? On the one hand, the lack of faculty of color and its erosion over time. And which coincides, as Alicia pointed out, with austerity, right? And, 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 and the erosion of the endowment, right? At the very same time where jobs are out migrating and the only jobs that, that New Haven is adding to the economy are low paying, indecent jobs. Mm -hmm. um, at the same time that the construction sites on New Haven's campus are hiring from outside of New Haven, right? right? These things can't be decoupled. We experience all of them. And then to, to get back to your question about the students being coddled and mm -hmm. kind of them making this up into a bigger trauma than it actually is, right? They're experiencing this. Right. I, I had a student who told me that uh, she was a, she was a dark skinned black student. She said, when I walk through New Haven, I be sh I'm, I'm sure to wear my pearl necklace and my Yale sweatshirt. Otherwise, I'll be confused. Now, the fact that she meaning had, that she would be confused as a non Yale student, she, so she would yes, be a she could open herself up to police harassment. She could open herself up to people assuming, you know, something about her status right well, that's her perception even if it doesn't but it doesn't matter right but it does exactly <laughs> right and 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 we meaning yale as an institution and community within a community really haven't grappled with this that like and and then we expect the students to take on both the mismatch between their diversity and inclusion and lived experience and the faculty diversity on the one hand and the structural violence that goes on in New Haven, that's a tall and order. And live in a college called Calhoun. 
Like, right. like that's exactly. a trifecta right there. That is a recipe for post-traumatic stress disorder. <laughs> and we'll come back to that. I want to, uh, for the last five minutes or so of the show, I want to talk a little bit about town-gown relations, um, but really want to get your own personal sense of what the challenges are as three of the stellar, brilliant women of color uh, who teach at the university. Um, Tracy. I think Bachelor. Um, articulated it very well and you know I don't want to take up a lot of extra time except to say that you know one of the issues that I experience personally is that a great deal of my work focuses on policing Um, and so being immersed in that world of you know how policing is carried out here and in cities across the country is you know a very profound (laughs) experience of having, you know, one foot in one world and one foot in in another world where you can be, where one can be, um, you know, find the inequality that Veshla describes, you know, deeply upsetting. And at the same time, you know, really wanting to have a haven, (laughs) speaking of New Haven, you know, when I get home um, from traveling to Chicago and Oakland and Gary, Indiana, and all of the other places that I go to where people are really struggling with how to do police reform um, and finding on the one hand, New Haven to be a wonderful place for my children uh, to grow up compared to other cities that I've lived in. I've only ever lived in very large cities until I moved here, Um, but also finding it to be extremely upsetting when one sees the African-Americans that one sees around in this town, you know, are located primarily in one socioeconomic class, which was not true uh, when I lived in Chicago and when I lived in New York. So, Alicia? Yeah, I want to start by saying that, um, you know, like my colleagues here, um, New Haven offers me an extraordinary array of experiences. And... I came as a, also someone looking at policing, particularly around immigration, and I really felt that I was going to be here temporarily because my work concerned um, issues in the U.S.-Mexico border region. Well, the New Haven has become a border space. Mm-hmm. And so the joy of living in New Haven is to be part of a struggle and to be part of a struggle where we have a city that is structured politically, but also a size where we can engage collectively in meaningful projects to look at structural inequality and look at structural violence. Um, So it's staggering to me to think that um, the kinds of inequality, gross inequality that exists in this city and in this state, um, it is painful and hard to navigate, right? Um, I'll give a very personal example. I had twins. I was an at-risk pregnancy during twins. I had the healthiest babies you could ever ask for. Um, My colleague in the dining hall's daughter was having twins. She was not an employee. She did not receive health benefits from Yale New Haven. Her babies were born premature at 1.5 pounds. Mm. Low birth weights for um, poor people in this state rival um, the statistics in severely depressed countries without he- adequate health services. Hmm. 
um, one in four uh, families experiences chronic hunger, right? So within that context, right, we are called, I think, as an institution to build bridges, to build relationships, and to learn from where the neighborhoods we live in. And I will say that it's New Haven and particularly um, Fairhaven that kept me here. It wasn't so much Yale University. What Yale at the same time has done is give me an extraordinary student body. So I have the opportunity to teach a class um, in which I have 60% of my students are first generation. 80% of them are people of color Mm. and people of color from all over the world. I don't have to worry that they're not going to have adequate financial aid to be able to successfully complete four years of college. I was just Mm -hmm. at UC Santa Cruz where I met with students who transfer into state schools from community colleges and um, on average are taking five and six years to graduate. So in that context, Yale gives me a tremendous amount. My problem is really two things. One is it's impossible to build any permanence at Yale around the work that I do. So I'm actually in a much worse place now than I was when I was hired. There are fewer courses offered in my field. All of the colleagues of mine who have been promoted are in administration and service. We are um, a faculty of color that fills gaps across the institution well beyond what we were hired to do. So that means that my generation who have assumed the rights and privileges of full faculty status, full, um, are not operating like tenured people. We don't have the conditions. We're not publishing our second books, our third books. We're not building. Um, I have 20 graduate students. I have more graduate students than most of my colleagues. Um, Most of them are first generation. Um, I have more undergraduate students than most of my colleagues. So as a result, I have the wealth that they bring me but I don't have um, the ability to do my own scholarship and promote my own career interests. So we are running out of time. Unfortunately, we did not get to the taxation issue that really I was hoping we would um, talk about, uh, which really uh, highlights the the town gown uh, growing tension. But before we sign off, I'm going to do a quick round robin and we have 30 seconds. Your favorite New Haven hero, Shiro, Alicia. Picamatos. Beshla. <laughs> That's a hard one. Let's see. I'd say, let me say Tracy Mears. Tracy. Oh, uh, uh, can I say Representative Walker? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Walker. Modern that. Sally's or Peppies. <laughs> all Mexican food in New Haven. Okay. All, all restaurants hire Mexicans. So all pizzas <laughs> made by Mexicans. I was like, all of the pizza is good. Bachelor. I'm going to s- skip off of that one and say La Molienda is my place. Uh Your favorite New Haven neighborhood? Fairhaven. Fairhaven. Uh, <laughs> although I do like Beaver No Hills. pressure there, Tracy. Oh, uh, yeah. I like Beaver that. I'm going to pick that one. Beaver Hills. Beaver Hills. Yeah, that's and the nice. last question. If you could pick a superhero power, what would it be? Oh. I would never want any superhero power. Special. <laughs> I think I would want to time travel. Tracy? Not to have to sleep. Ooh. 
So this brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Kika's Corner on WNHH, New Haven's home for community radio broadcast at 105, 103.5 FM and live streamed at newhavenindependent.org. Thank you, Tracy Veshla and Alicia for joining us. And um, until next month, here is wishing you justice, solidarity, and many days of sunshine.